to uh, Psalm 95, um, and we'll be, we will look a little bit at Psalm 95 and 96. Um, and as you can see in your outline, we're going to look at a lot of other passages, and we're going to fly through those, so I gave them all there so you can look at them some other time. Um, but over the last few weeks, last several weeks, we have reflected on four Latin phrases that grew out of the, the Reformation. We began by considering sola scriptura, that scripture alone is our inspired and inerrant authority. It's not tradition, it's not people, it is scripture where we find our guidance, where we find our authority. The next week we considered the, the sol, solus Christus, Christ alone is our means of salvation. And then we followed that with sola fide, we experience the salvation from Jesus Christ by faith alone. And then last week we considered um, sola gratia. Salvation is a free gift of grace from God alone. It can't be earned. And so if scripture is the foundation for these solas and Christ is really the centerpiece of all of them, then this sola today is the capstone. This is the one that, that just, it's like icing on the cake. And that is soli deo gloria. Literally, the phrase means to the glory of God alone. God gets the glory for Scripture. He inspired it. God gets the glory for our salvation through Christ. He ordained it and initiated faith and grace as the means by which we receive that salvation. Truly, in all of life, God should get the glory. According to uh, the Dictionary of Theological Terms, the significant the significance of this phrase, soli deo gloria, is twofold. First, that God's supreme end in planning and purchasing and applying our salvation is his own glory. He did it so that he would be praised. But then secondly, that therefore the chief end and intention of those who have received God's saving grace in Christ is to bring him Glory. God saves us for his glory, and then we are saved unto God so that we might glorify him. And while the focus for the reformers was on the glory of God and salvation, there is an element of which soli deo gloria permeates far beyond the salvation of his people. It's more than just saving that God is glorified. It is not less than that, but it is certainly more. And so today, as we wrap up this series, we're going to take a very brief survey through Scripture. Some of this will feel a little bit repetitive in that because you know it, but I want us to see the glory of God as it's laid out through Scripture. And we're going we're gonna, to, probably the two passages that will come to most of all of them is Psalm 95 and 96. Because I think, I think these Psalms reflect some of those elements. So if you have your Bibles open and want to look there, that's great. But let's begin by considering God's glory intended. God's glory intended. You see, as with anything that someone creates, there is a sense in which that which is created brings glory to its creator. And let me illustrate this for, for us. Uh, in my office, I don't have a lot of artwork. I've got a lot of knickknacks and things that people have given me. But I have two pieces of art that sit right above my desk. On the right-hand side, there's a painting or a print by Thomas Kincaid. It's entitled Placerville in the Snow. And I think I inherited that somewhere from my grandparents because they lived just outside of Placerville, California. 
And there's something common about all of Thomas Kincaid's work, his coloring, his, the way he catches motion, the way he catches humanity. It, it just, it speaks, it declares the glory, if you will, of Thomas Kincaid. The other piece of artwork that's just above my computer monitor to the left-hand side is, is very different from Thomas Kincaid's piece of art. This one is, is painted with, with a different type of paint. It's painted with different colors, and it's by a totally different artist. Her name is Zoe. And what was cool is that Zoe actually took a picture, or she, Melody had taken a picture, and Zoe was given an assignment to paint a picture in class. And so Zoe painted that piece of artwork. So it's her interpretation on a picture that Melody took. So it, it, there, these, these two pieces of artwork are very different, and yet they both declare the glory of their creators in very different ways. And in much the same way, from the very beginning, God's glory was intended to be displayed through his creation. The psalmist regularly returned to this theme of God's glory. As, we, as Dan read a few moments ago in Psalm 96, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then the trees, then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord. We could talk all day about the genius, the wonder, the beauty of God's creation, and we would still never exhaust all that there is to consider in what God has made. I mean, just think about this. When we think about the balance and the precision and the variety in the galaxies, if we could look up there and truly understand what's out there and see, I mean, even just in our little galaxy, all the, the variety in the way the planets are laid out, and one of the things that um, I think Zoe pointed out this morning in Sunday school was that our planet is in just the right spot. It's like the Goldilocks thing, right? Not too hot, not too cold. It's just right. Otherwise, if we were closer to the sun, we'd burn up. And if we were a little farther away, we'd freeze to death. There was balance and precision. Let the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Psalm 19.1. Or think about this. If we zoom in just to this little piece of rock that we live on, I mean, look at the variety and the Topography. I don't know if you caught some of those pictures that Melody was showing. All the people, all the places where she stayed, they were sleeping above the water, which is totally cool. You get all the, you feel the ocean. Oh, man, that'd just be so amazing. But then when you think about the, the majestic mountains to the deepest oceans, the fertile plains, the desert regions, the chill of the poles, the warmth of the equator, all that variety is just on this little piece of dirt that God made. And then we get the variety of seasons and weather patterns. In Psalm 135, it says, it, He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for rain and brings forth wind from his storehouses. God ordains the, the weather patterns that are out there. And then we have the peculiarities among the created things that thrive on our, on our planet, plant life. How many different varieties of Flowers and plants and trees are out there. And then you get the birds, the sea creatures, the reptiles, the insects, and then the mammals. Creation compels us to respond with a sense of awe and wonder toward the creator. And hopefully that sense of awe and wonder also leads us a little bit of humility. But among God's creation, as magnificent as it is, there is one part of creation that is special to God. And that is the part of creation that you look at when you look in the mirror each morning. 
you and I, humans, are the pinnacle of God's creation. We are the only ones that bear his image. John Piper said, so God makes us in his image. We could argue about whether it's our rationality or our morality or our volition that makes us in his image. The point is he makes humans in his image to image something. We are to represent something, namely him. So our existence is about showing God's existence or specifically it's about showing God's glory, which I think means God's manifold perfections, the radiance, the display, the streaming out of his many colored, beautiful perfections. We want to think and live and act and speak in such a way that we draw attention to the manifold perfections of God. In the creation account, humans, namely Adam and Eve, were the only ones with whom God chose to fellowship. There's a verse that says God walked with them in the cool of the day. He chose to commune with those with them. He chose to have his image reflected in them. And God allowed humans to be able to have dominion over all of the rest of his creation to give them being steward being stewards of his creation. And they were given just two simple rules. Multiply, fill the earth. We're doing an okay job with that although populations are declining, we need to have more babies, but that's sociologists say that God says we need to fill the earth. And then he gave them one prohibition. He said, you can eat anything except this one thing. And you guys know what happened. Just like a kid who can't have that very thing they want to have. I mean, the, the thing you say they can't have, they want it, right? And so Adam and Eve did that. And tragically, God's glory was rejected. God, God's glory was intended to be seen in one way, and then we rejected God's glory. Near the very beginning... Adam and Eve rejected the good word and the fellowship of God with the deception of Satan. And as, as you know, this resulted in the fall. We see that in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, where Eve was approached by the serpent who caused, who caused her to question God's goodness, caused her to question what God intended. And so he said, did God really say this? And, and Eve said, well, yeah, I can't do this. He said, well, God's keeping something from you. If you eat it, you'll be like God. And oh, man, she wanted to be like God. She wanted to know good and evil. And so she ate it. In an act of hubris and rebellion, Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, and she gave some to Adam, who was standing right there. And he ate it too. And immediately, they knew good and evil, and they knew their shame and their nakedness, and as a result, sin entered into the world. Humanity and even all of creation was corrupted by this stain of sin. Paul writes in Romans concerning those, all those who have rebelled against God. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Adam and Eve, and by extension, all of us exchanged the glory of God for the temporary pleasures of his creation, for a piece of fruit. How often has it been for those of you guys like me who tried to lose weight and you have that mantra going through your head, a moment on the lips is a lifetime on the hips, right? <laughs> a moment on the lips for Adam and Eve was eternity for all us. But then not only did sin enter the world, there was a secondary result of this rebellion and that was exile. Adam and Eve were exiled. They were pushed out of the garden, out of the presence of God. They were separated from him. 
And yet God hadn't forgotten his people. We see throughout the rest of Scripture the story of God's interaction essentially with one family until we get to the New Testament. In spite of the rebellion of humanity, God demonstrated his grace and mercy, showing his loving kindness. And so what began with Abraham, where God said Abra- called Abraham out of the stupor of his paganism, he called Abraham to walk with him and entered into a covenant with him. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And yet as, as Abraham's family continued to grow, as God continued to bless them, God continued to work in their lives. He continued to show himself faithful in spite of repeated rebellion. God even initiated a system whereby his people could be in fellowship with him, where they could rightfully look at their sin and, and realize, have this bloody reminder that they are fallen, that we are fallen, and yet be reminded of his grace over and over and over again. And yet for centuries, we see this tug, the relationship, they're close. And then there's rebellion, there's rejection, there's sometimes repentance, and then they come back, and then they repeat it. Relationship, rebellion, repentance, return, repeat. Relationship, rebellion, repentance, return. We see this in Exodus this, this, there's this interesting balance in Exodus where, where God called the people of Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness for a time, and he was with them, and yet he was near and far at the same time. His glory was described as a cloud. It's like awesome and mysterious and wonderful. And, and so he would go with them. His presence would go with them, leading them in the wilderness, that pillar of cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night. And yet even with God's presence there, the people of Israel still struggled. They still rebelled. In fact, Psalm 95 says this, beginning in verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on that day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test And put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You see, in the wilderness, time and again, they they would complain. And at Meribah and Massa, they grumbled against God. And God ultimately said, Okay, fine, I'll give you what you want. But see, the underlying damage was done. They didn't trust God. And ultimately, think about this. In this rebellion at Meribah and Massa that we could read about in in the Pentateuch in in, um, Exodus, in that rebellion, they wanted to reject the glory of God to go back into slavery in Egypt. How often do we do that? We reject the goodness and the glory, the beauty, the wisdom the sovereignty of God for slavery to earthly pleasures. A few decades later, when the Israelites finally made it into the promised land, we learned that the pillar didn't lead them because they were home. So God set up shop and he made a tabernacle, had them build a tabernacle in Shiloh and then eventually in Jerusalem. And yet time and again, they would go through that process. You know the, the judges cycle. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Relationship, rebellion, repentance, return, repeat. 
And then they longed to be just like the other nations. So they said, please, God, give us a king. So God gave them kings. And yet in just three generations of kings, the rebellion had set in that it cracked, it fractured the nation in two. And they continued to rebel, relationship, rebellion, repentance, repeat. And eventually, the repentance didn't come back. They just continued to spin away from God. And so God was left with no other choice but to exile them. And in two large waves, God allowed the people of the northern kingdom, Judah, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah, to be conquered and taken into exile. And God created a void. And he allowed that physical exile to, to represent a spiritual exile that was happening in their midst. And Ezekiel uh, saw a vision from the Lord, and he talked about that when he, in Ezekiel 10, 18, when he said, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house. And eventually the glory of the Lord, Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord depart from the city. It's as though God had said, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm no longer going to be with you. And yet there was still hope because through Ezekiel, through the other prophets, God continued to communicate to the people, you're faithless, I'm faithful, and I'm going to show you because God's glory was ultimately promised in the future. He promised to continue to redeem and restore. And shortly after seeing the vision of the departure of the glory, Ezekiel foretold this promise in a new way. He said in Ezekiel eleven sixteen 16 to 20, Thus says the Lord God, Though I removed them far, from among, uh, far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries. For, for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. He promised to bring them back. And, then, and, and when they come here, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all the abominations, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and will give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and they shall be my people and I will be their God. So he promised to bring them back, but then ultimately God promised to be with them and that's the promise we see in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus would be the means of God's glory returning. He is the embodiment of God's presence in the temple. David Van Drunen, a guy who wrote about God's glory alone, this sola, says that soli deo gloria becomes part and parcel of the gospel through the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he suggests that Jesus comes as the true and ultimate temple of God. And although God through, through the tabernacle and then later the temple and the sacrificial system created a way for people to fellowship, Jesus steps onto the scene as the eternal temple and as the perfect sacrifice. Van Drunen continues, Jesus came as the dwelling of God among men, the brightest revelation of the divine glory. His name was Emmanuel, God with us. And through his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, the division between our sin and God's holiness was removed. Mark 15, 38 says, The curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom when Jesus was crucified. And then the writer of Hebrews expounds on this more, Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, 
And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and with our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So Jesus steps onto the scene to be the embodiment of what God promised, to be his presence among us, to save us, to bring us into a relationship with him. And then he promised the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would be the one ultimately that would transform our hardened hearts into hearts of flesh that are tender toward God. John 14, 26, Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You see, only once Jesus conquered our sin could the Holy Spirit come. And with Jesus' victory on the cross and the Spirit in us, indwelling believers, proclamation of God's glory takes on a new dimension. It's not just this vast and mysterious cloud. It isn't just this wondrous mystery. There's something new and tangible. It brings a, a new dimension, a broader dimension, a personal dimension as we see finally God's glory experienced. See, the, God, God intended that he would be glorified through his creation, most of all through his people. And Van Drunen suggests that there are three areas of our lives in which where we can experience and exhibit the glory of God, contrasting those with some things in our age. So this is, let's kind of wrap this up with, with a couple of thoughts here. And the first is this, that worship and prayer are there to help us fight in an age of distraction. I don't think you guys need me to remind you how distracting our age is. There are ads upon ads upon ads upon ads upon ads upon ads upon ads clamoring for our attention, our money. And then there's the constant reminder of emails. What's the percentage of the emails you actually read versus the ones that you delete? I got to figure out how to get that bigger group. And most of mine get deleted. Then there's the text messages that demand our immediate attention and the social media posts that we need to keep up with. Oh, you know, all these things. Did you know this happened to this person? There's so much out there. There's news clips and financial updates and more, and we think that we can multitask. We think that we can hang on to it all, and ultimately what we're doing is just shuffling one thing from the forefront of our mind and moving things around in order to focus on that for a quick moment. And then for those of you who are still working, you've got all those distractions happening before, during, and after your work tasks that are there, pulling and tugging and yanking on you. And it makes it so difficult for us to be present in conversations, in the tasks and activities that are before us, and maybe even the assignments from God. One of the things Melody shared with us last, you know, in, pre in preparing for the trip is that they weren't going to have cell phones with them. They had no Wi-Fi, no cell data, no nothing. It was basically off, detached. And yet, what was the thing she said a lot? Presence. You could be present with someone. In fact, research has revealed that our media-driven, distracted environment in which we live is actually rewiring our brains. It's making, have you noticed how difficult it is or it can be to focus on something? If, if I don't get a distraction in like every five seconds, I can't see what this is. 
And then it takes me 10 minutes to come back to that. In his book, The Glory of God Alone, Van Drunen suggests that worship and prayer might be helpful disciplines in this fight with the distractions of our day. You see, worship is a way for us to get our eyes and our minds off of those distractions and onto the glorious attributes of the triune God. J.C. Ryle states that the glory of God is the first thing that God's children should desire. You see, it's our acts of worship, whether it's private worship or corporate, our times together, or it, whether it's in song or, or silence. Do you, do you, are you ever in silence? It's hard. Or maybe our acts of worship in reading his word or journaling about his work in our lives. Worship brings God glory and lifts our gaze from the blue light of our electronic babysitters. Psalm 95 verses 1 to 5 says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land. And as Dan read earlier, Psalm 96, 7, ascribe to the Lord, tell of his glory, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, bring an offering and come into his courts, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, tremble before him all the earth. And yet beyond just worship, well, we can be in awe. Sometimes worship, sometimes we like to think that worship is singing, and yet it's so much more than that. We like those warm, fuzzy moments. You know, when you get those goosebumps, you go, oh, yeah, I worship. Well, it was, it, yeah, it's more than that. And God gives us this beautiful tool called prayer. Prayer is a vehicle through which we can communicate with him. And maybe if you're like me, you're thinking, I'm more distracted when I'm praying than any other time. Prayer can be challenging especially if you pray silently. Even though I pray through a list of people which are ultimately on my phone, and you know what happens when you're on your phone, things come up, and it's easy for me to pray sometimes bland and thoughtless prayers. I'm just going through, okay, Lord, be near this. Maybe we, maybe I need to rewire how I'm praying. Maybe I need to pray my prayers out loud so that my ears are hearing what my heart and mind are communicating through my mouth. Maybe I need to write them out. But Jesus gave us a good model in the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. In Matthew 6, he said, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is essentially worship. God, you are holy. You are glorious. Your love and mercy are without end. Your justice and righteousness are sure and true. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I heard Jay say several years ago, let what's up there be down here. And maybe, if it's, maybe even more specifically, God, let your mind, your heart, your desires, your actions be in me. Think about that. If we're... If we're doing God's things, if we're thinking God's thoughts, if we're loving what God loves and desiring what God desires, will God get glory? Yes. Let what's up there, your kingdom come, 
be down here. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. In the Old Testament, God was known at various times as Jehovah Jireh, our provider. He provide, we have to recognize that he provides for our needs, whether through work, through charity, through surprise blessings. He is our source. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Let the forgiveness that we have received reflect the forgiveness that we give. Help us to forgive in your ways. Verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Guide us in your ways. Protect us from, from those things, those distractions, those, the evil of the world around us. And then many translations conclude with the doxology. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. What if we rewired the way that we were praying to avoid the distractions? But not only can we battle the distraction of our age with worship and prayer, secondly, Van Drunen suggests that reverence and humility help us in a culture of narcissism. You know, in our culture, we, we can become so focused on us, on our own glory, how good we are, or even, get this, some of us with low self-esteem, you might think, I don't want my own glory, and yet sometimes we're the ones crying out saying, look how bad I am. Look how depressed I am. Look at how lowly I am. And yet it's still all about us. We fail to look at our condition with healthy eyes. We fail to see ourselves the way that God sees us. But when we reflect on God being the holy, just, powerful, loving, and merciful God that he is and all of the other attributes that we could just use to describe him, we see him for who he is, then our natural response is humility. Isaiah got a glimpse of this. When he saw a vision of the throne room of God, he said the, the, it was, he was high and exalted. His train of his robe filled the temple. And then Isaiah responded with humility. In Isaiah 6, 5, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He saw himself with realistic, healthy eyes. And yet in turn, God responded with forgiveness. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Think about this. How would a fallen human being who bears the image of God be worthy of God to bring forgiveness from the altar? And yet we have to respond because we see this time and again in Scripture Yes, God brings salvation. He brought it to Isaiah from the altar. He brought it to us through Jesus Christ from the very throne of God coming to redeem us. Oh, that we would gaze on his glory, not with physical eyes, but with spiritual eyes and see the wonder of who God is and respond with humility. And finally, we should keep our perspective eternal in a world that is limited by the temporal it's, it's not hard to see how temporary things are. Children go, grow quickly, don't they? I know, kids, you feel like it's never, you're never old enough. You're never there. Years seem to fly by. And then, on top of that, that gadget you purchased last week is already out of date. Earthly glories are like flambe. They shine brightly and capture our attention briefly, and then they fade quickly 
But when we comprehend that we live as people with a sort of dual citizenship, citizenship like some of you guys have, we, then we will recognize that the pleasures, the trials, the events of life that are meaningful for a moment here are ultimately eternally fleeting. We have a citizenship here. We have a citizenship that is eternal in heaven, and it's those things that we should live for. But Van Drunen suggests that we should view the eternal versus the temporal by remembering two additional things in addition to, you know, in addition to our uh, citizenship, and that is one, that we are sojourners. Those of you guys who grew up in the church, you remember the old song? This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. The treasures I lay on somewhere beyond the blue. The, the whole idea was that we're just, we're not here for long. We're here for the years and decades that God ordains. And when we get to be present, ultimately when, when God determines that our time is done, we get to be with him for eternity. Some of us on this side will feel like it's not long enough or it's too long here. But we have to recognize that we're just passing through. Ultimately, we're going to the glory that's, that we have with God. And finally, we have to recognize that we are exiles. Think about this. Do you remember what happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden? What was God's, in addition to sin being in there, what was the second thing that happened to them? They were exiled. They were kicked out. What happened to the people of Israel when ultimately they stopped returning to God? They were exiled. Well, here's what happened. I think God, the, the beauty of what God has done in his glory, he, he exiled his son from heaven, or Jesus willingly exiled himself for a time to be like us so that he could redeem us from our sin. And now get this, as we, when we respond to him by faith, when we come to salvation by faith in him, now we become exiles from the sinful land in which we live. Now we are his for eternity. We're not exiles because we sinned. We're exiles from that sin into a relationship with God. Because of that, the values and standards and worldview of the culture in which we live do not apply to us. We act by different values. We live by different standards. We operate by a different worldview. We operate by an eternal one that is rooted in Scripture and, and in the glory and character of God. So let me close with this. I realize in some ways this might feel a bit like a fire hose drinking session. But God intended his glory to be revealed through his creation, especially through you and me, through his image bearers. The sinful response of our ancestors and our willful sinful response today caused us to reject his glory and pine for the temporary things of this life. In his grace and mercy, God promised his glory to his creation through Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus' humiliation, I mean, that's something we don't think. We think, I got I to gotta promote myself to get glory, and yet Jesus humiliated himself on our behalf. Because of his humiliation and exaltation, now we get to experience and walk in his glory each day. And I pray that we would never take that lightly. Johann Sebastian Bach, a composer who lived in the late 17th and early, early 18th centuries, wrote tons of music for the church and for the general world at large. And at the end of each of his compositions, 
Bach would write these three little letters, S-D-G, meaning soli deo gloria. And his, his whole idea, the whole reason he did that was so that he would remind himself that whatever acclaim I get from this, this is for God's glory. But he was also reminding the world who would read those remarks, to read those little letters, that this was written for, the, for God's glory alone. And I pray that our lives will be marked by that same attitude. S-D-G, soli deo gloria. 